Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Rob Wolf the host of New Books in Science Fiction, and I've been on a bit of a sabbatical since last year, and I haven't posted a podcast in about 10 months, so I apologize for that. And what you're about to hear is a podcast I recorded last summer with Patrick S. Tomlinson. At the time, he was the author of the first two books in his Children of a Dead Earth series, The Ark and Trident's Forge, But the cool thing about time travel, which waiting 10 months to post this interview kind of creates the time traveling effect, is that Patrick's third book is about to come out in August, Children of the Divide. And another cool thing, or maybe not so cool thing, is that when we talk about political events, because Patrick is also a comedian and a writer for The Hill about political matters, the situation in our world and in our country really hasn't changed so much in 10 months so that the conversation about politics and trolls is just as relevant as ever. And one final note, at a couple points, Patrick's reception wavers a bit and a couple of the words might be inaudible, but I ask that you just stick with it and I think it is actually all understandable and very quickly uh, gets back to um, excellent reception. And now here's the interview. Hi, I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe and The Escape with this September edition of New Books in Science Fiction. I'm pleased to have with me today Patrick S. Tomlinson, who is the author of the first two books in The Children of a Dead Earth trilogy, which is a really serious name for books that are also a lot of fun. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I'm glad to be here, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. Well, so let's set this up a bit. Uh, Earth is already dead at the beginning of the first book, The Ark, and in fact, I think it's been dead about 250 years. Uh, So maybe you could uh, say what happened to it. Sure. The backstory of the book Uh, starts a good couple of centuries before the action takes place. And the Ark itself is a a generation ship. Um, It's actually a nuclear impulse drive ship, which is a fancy way of saying it's a giant pogo stick that shits nuclear bombs. Um, But it has been in space for about 230 years. It took around 80 years to construct. And the reason it exists is because at the beginning of that 80 years it was discovered that there is a rogue black hole on the very edge of the uh, our solar system's Oort cloud. This happens in around 2150, somewhere in that time frame. And you know, as this uh, rogue black hole is coming into the system, it starts gobbling up uh, Oort cloud materials, little planetoids and so forth, and, and giving off uh, attending gamma ray uh, radiation bursts. So we get a bit of an early warning. And it takes quite a while for it to, because it's not traveling at light speed, so it takes you know about 80 years before it gets to the point that it, would, it ends up destroying the Earth or throwing it out of its orbit or you know just making, making Earth not great real estate anymore. So mankind knows that they don't, 
have any way of stopping a black hole. So instead, they, their only choice for survival is to, to build this absolutely honking 10-mile-long spaceship, shove 50,000 people on it, and shoot it off for uh, Tau Ceti G, which is a fictional or hypothetical planet that exists around a real star that is around two and, uh, 12 and a half light years away from us. So the action actually takes place about a month or so before the ship is reaching this new um, hypothetical planet. So it's at the very end of its journey. Uh, the characters are the 11th generation of people to have lived and died on board this ship. So that's, that's kind of where the action starts. It makes it a little bit different from a lot of the other uh, generation ship books that I've read in the past where it's either taking place as it's launching or it's like halfway through, you know, it's just, this is, this is wrapping up, um, with a long, long dead memory. You know, no one, no one on board has, uh, has seen it or, or, you know, stood on it. Like anybody who actually touched has been dead for more than a century. And that's, that's where we get started with it. That's one of the many interesting decisions I think you make to, to begin the action basically 250 years after Earth is gone. And so it's really not about the Earth's destruction, but it's about entering uh, a world unto itself, which mm-hmm. has survived these 11 generations and has its own cultures and customs. And, and then you do something uh, I found interesting as well, that you basically make it a mystery. You know, there's a murder, and the main character, Brian Benson, is a detective, and he has to solve it. And it's, I suppose, modeled after one of these locked door mysteries where, you know, there's a set number of people who could be the suspects, only in this case, instead of it being, I don't know, like a dozen people at a dinner party in a room, it's, you know, the 50,000 people right. who, who are the emissaries of the human race. Well, the only humans left in the universe. Yep, it is a it is a game of Clue uh, played out over a a 10-mile-long starship with 50,000 people. I've I heard people start calling it a, a locked room murder mystery when we were doing like beta readings. I'm like, well, it's more of a sealed airlock murder mystery, really. Um, but you know, same same thing. There's nowhere to go. And in fact, that's what was so strange about the uh, the disappearance of the of the person in the first place is that you know they just turned up missing and you can't turn up missing. There's nowhere to go. You can't just run off to the horizon and take it up a new identity in some other country like. Just the fact that someone isn't there anymore is really baffling to everyone. Yeah, exactly. And and yet you sustain the suspense. Though at first I'm like, well, what's the mystery? I mean, my God, they're on a spaceship. But And when you realize it's 10 miles wide and you start thinking about 50,000 people, I mean, that's basically a small city. And, you know, people who live in a small city, they don't know every person who lives in the city. And this guy, Brian Benson, doesn't know everyone who lives there. And suddenly it gets really interesting that it's not it's not as quickly solved as you might think. Yeah. Well, and the the way it was actually I had a moment um, because I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I was sitting at a uh, a brewer game about the, at, um, at Miller Park when I was starting to flesh out this this novel in this world, and it was a sold out game. And Miller Park's capacity is about forty five thousand people or so. And you know, I mean, growing up in like small rural towns, that sounds like a huge number of people, as I did. But then people who are from 
you know, rural Wisconsin might look at 45,000 people and think, oh my gosh, that's a tiny number. And for a city, you know, like Chicago or New York or whatever, yeah, that's a, that's not even a neighborhood. That's nothing. But when you're actually sitting in a stadium with 45,000 people, you realize just how big of a number that is. And like, you don't, you couldn't know all of them. Not really. Like you, you might see all of them, but you couldn't recognize all their faces. You wouldn't know all their names. You wouldn't know what all they do for a living. That's simply too many people to keep track of. And it also happened to be, um, 50,000 also happened to be the number that uh, a couple of different, uh, a couple of different scientists and, and uh, physicists came up with for a plausible number of people you would actually need on a space arc in order to come out the other side and still have enough genetic diversity and enough manpower and everything to restart a colony civilization. So that was kind of nice happenstance. You know, I'm like, okay, well, I guess I was ended up pretty close. <laughs> and you do have a, a stadium actually uh, that's featured in the, in the arc, which then serves multiple purposes as time goes on. But Brian Benson, the main protagonist, he was a star at this ball game called Zero, which is played in zero gravity. Mm-hmm. I wanted I wanted the main character to be uh, kind of an everyman stand-in for for the reader, and so I mean I'm I'm a big sports fan. Uh, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, as I did, you know we we didn't play Dungeons and Dragons on Sunday. Us, you know, me and the other nerds didn't because we were all watching the Packer game. That's just. There was no separation there, you know, and it, it actually took me going out into the rest of the country and going to conventions and talking to other, uh, you know, nerds and geeks and gamers and all that stuff before I realized that there's like in, in a big section of, of my little, uh, you know, my little tribe here, there's this really strange uh, borderline hatred for professional organized sports. And it just took me completely by surprise because where I came from, the, the Packers, the brewers were just that's just what you did but telling it as it was from the perspective of someone who you know wasn't one of the engineers it was what made it a little bit easier to, to tell the story in such a way that it would be more accessible to people who maybe read mostly murder mysteries or thrillers and hadn't ever picked up a hard sci-fi book before do different rules apply for writing a mystery when you set it in space or is it basically the same is the genre the same you know i tried to I tried to write it more or less as kind of like a, like a hard-boiled like '30s pulp mystery that just happened to have sci-fi wallpaper. So people who enjoyed either of those kinds of, of genres would be able to pick it up and see, uh, you know, tropes that they recognized and enjoyed, uh, and maybe even not realize that they were reading the other one. You know what I mean? So if they if they were reading a sci-fi novel. If they didn't read a lot of mysteries, they might not know the tropes of murder, of murder mystery novels and could, get, and could get pleasant surprises out of it. And if they had read a lot of murder mystery novels, but they didn't read a lot of sci-fi, then the, the beats of the story would be fairly familiar to them, but the setting would be really cool. So that's, that's kind of the balance I was trying to strike while I was, while I was writing it. Well, I wanted to ask you something about uh, Brian Benson. I, you know, I noticed on the covers, as, as far as I could tell, you never really describe his ethnicity, but on the covers, he looks like a person of color. And I thought that was an interesting way to telegraph information about a character that you never really address in the book. And, I, and maybe I'm misreading the cover. 
I just wondered if there had been some discussion among the cover designer, if you get, gave thought to his ethnicity, if there was some, uh, maybe, maybe you never mentioned his ethnicity because it's really not important to you and it's not important to the story. Um, and yet maybe you, you're trying to give a flavor of him being a part of his being an everyman. I just wonder what kind of, if there was any thought to it and if, I've, if the covers were communicating that. The specific instructions that I gave to um, Larry Rostat, who was the uh, the cover artist, he's actually up for a Hugo Award this year, uh, which is nice. But um, the specific instructions I gave to him were: uh, Brian is he's he's a he's a fairly large man. He's former he's a former athlete who's kept himself up, and he is of fairly indeterminate genealogy because at and the reason his race never really comes up in books is was a conscious decision, because after 11 years, you know, of everybody locked up in this fishbowl together, or I mean, sorry, 11 generations of everybody locked up in this fishbowl together, and all the, you know, wildly ecstatic interbreeding that goes on with that, the the races are becoming really indistinct. You know, everybody's browning out. So that's what I wanted for the cover, and I think that the I think that the uh, model that he picked for it was perfect because you, you can look at that and think it's that uh, that cover model is a person of color, or you can look at him and think that's that's a white guy with a really smashing tan. You're not really sure, and that was kind of the point. Yeah, I wondered. I mean, I thought that that was possible. I just thought, um, and it was interesting that it's really never mentioned. Uh, Although there was one comment in the second book, Trident's Forge, where uh, the the Atlanteans, because in the second book they've in fact landed on this new world, uh, to them their their skin they communicate through patterns in their skin and the fact that uh, humans' skin color doesn't really change and communicate in that way is uh, is uh, you know obviously of interest to them and uh, mm-hmm. and someone says something about. Uh, you're 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 too pale or something, and he said, "Well, no one's ever said that to me before. That's the first time I've ever heard that." Right. Uh, and I thought that was a very oblique reference to the fact that he wasn't um, classically Caucasian. No, he certainly. Uh, I I don't envision Brian as you know uh, Northern European. Um, you know, perhaps Mediterranean. Uh, you know, Middle Eastern sort of sort of complexion, something. Uh, you know, or, or you know, Moroccan, North African, something closer to that. Um, but yeah, the way with the way that that the Atlanteans communicate, I mean, their their skin goes from uh, striped bands of of really dark color to uh, literal bioluminescent. And when they when they die, that goes that all goes away, and they become very very uniformed color because all of the chromatophores that causes those pattern changes all relax. And so, to to them, human skin being you know one on its own color, whatever that color happens to be, uh, looks like dead flesh to them, and it freaks them out for quite a while. It takes them a while to get used to it. So yeah. Well, I hope I haven't ruined the ending of the arc by making reference to Trident's Forge, but they do eh, in fact you know. they do in fact <laughs> land, uh, and and uh, and I thought it was interesting uh, that not you... without cost. <laughs> not without yes. definitely not without cost, and we don't need to to ruin that. But yep. um, but it right. It's it's and it and both books are kind of heart pounding in the sense that they're constructed as as kind of thrillers. You know, the plot really picks up pace, and they're it's quite dramatic in in both books. 
the difference being, and I was kind of surprised by this, but I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed both books. Uh, that in Trident's Forge, you know, it's not obviously they land, so it's not one of these locked room mysteries anymore. And in fact, it's really a different kind of science fiction book because it's kind of a first contact story. There's these aliens that they uh, come into contact with and have to uh, have uh, diplomatic and, and, and deeper connections with. And I wanted to ask you about that, about uh, your decision, because my expectation was, oh, okay, now there'll be another mystery that he has to solve. Hmm. And, and there is a mystery. It's just more geopolitical. It's less personal. It's not, you know, a missing person. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different sort of mystery, and it's in a very different setting. And I wondered how you decided uh, to, to go in that direction. Uh, simple answer is I didn't want to get locked into doing the same, you know, oh, well, what mystery is he solving this month story. So the first one was very deliberately written as a as a very classic murder mystery uh, with maybe a little bit bigger scope and, a, you know, the settings quite a bit different. Um, but the second one I wrote more as a first contact, taming a wild frontier um, sort of action adventure. It wasn't. There, there is a mystery in it, but that's just more of a, a more typical. It's like how do we solve this problem, you know, in this strange new place sort of thing than it is a police procedural. Uh, and that was that was a conscious decision. I didn't want to write the same book over and over again. So, um, you know, the second book, and and I didn't really think that you could write it over again because now you're on this new planet. You have encountered new alien life. Um, you know, the last book was a month away from when they were going to be reaching this new place anyway. So like anything, you know, there wasn't going to be a second book on set on the arc during that month because they were, they were busy flipping the ship around and slowing down. Like that's all they were doing. Um, so I, I very much wanted to go through the exercise of creating an alien species and an alien culture. And I wanted to spend a lot of time exploring that, because in the subsequent books, um, the relationship between humans and Atlanteans really comes to the forefront, and so they needed a, they needed a lot of setup. And so, talk about the Atlanteans. Like, how did you you know how, how did they emerge from your imagination as as the residents of this planet? Uh, I love I love cuttlefish and octopus. I think they're just the coolest things. Um, they are they are so intelligent and so alien like just in the way that they they perceive the world i mean they taste with their tentacles they um, you know they they can change their skin color and texture they have these dispersed nervous systems that where where if you cut off one of their tentacles like it knows to keep doing whatever it was doing so like it'll it'll continue like grabbing something like so if you're you know if you're a shark and you bite an octopus and the octopus was was wrapping itself around you that tentacle is going to continue wrapping itself around the shark even after it's gone and like it's just it's so completely different from from what we are it's as close to a, a truly alien creature i think uh, as, as close to a truly alien intelligence uh as we have on earth at, at the moment and so the idea was to take them and just say, okay, let's rewind the clock. And let's say that uh, cuttlefish or octopus or squid or whatever were the first things on land. They were the first things to leave the water. 
and vertebrates never really took hold or they stayed in the water or they all got eaten right away, you know, whatever the case may be. And so I just, I, I literally dropped a cuttlefish in a puddle on some tidal pool somewhere and ran the clock of evolution forward of a few hundred million years and tried to figure out what would come out the other end. And that's the Atlanteans. They are ambulatory talking road building cuttlefish. Yeah, and they're great, and they're nice. They're, they're well, at least uh, Kex, who is it play, has a unique role in their society, is a is a is is, a, is an endearing and intriguing uh, figure. I hope so. I really like Kex. I, did I misstate that this is a is it a trilogy or is it just kind of an ongoing series? Well, um, as long as this is going to air later than uh, tomorrow, <laughs> which, which which it is, I assume. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, uh, yes, by, by the time this airs, we uh, Ingrid Robot will have already made the formal announcement that uh, the third book in, this, in the trilogy, which is called, uh, at least the working title is Children of the Divide. Uh, we've signed a contract on that, um, and that'll be coming out uh, early next summer, I believe, is the tentative schedule. So I'm about 70,000 words into the third one right now. So, so, and that will be the completion of the trilogy, or it could be a continuing series if you are, if you and uh, your publisher are able to work something out. Well, it will depend on sales. I am writing the third one with the intention of completing Benson um, and Teresa's and Kex's arcs. They, you know, they will. You know, the characters that we've really come to know in the first two books will. Yeah, it, the the third book actually takes place 15 years after Trident's Forge, so these guys are, you know, they're in their 50s by now. Uh, it's not going to be, it's not their world anymore. You know, they're they're handing it off to the next generation, including uh, people like uh, May's daughter and um, Chao Feng's son, and another person who uh, I can't, I, I don't want to give away the ending, um, <laughs> but anyway, so. Yeah, the third book really focuses on um, you know wrapping up their stories, and and their their arcs, and kind of handing it off to a new generation. And if readers keep wanting more and keep buying them in sufficient numbers, that Angry Robot Books wants to keep giving me money, I will more than happily keep writing the series. Fantastic. Well, why don't you tell me a little bit about just how you 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 came to write the first book? I mean, and and get Angry Robot on board. I mean, because I know prior to you know establishing yourself as a an author of science fiction, you have worked as a comedian, and I also know that you uh, are writing about politics. You've been blogging for the Hill, and so you've got um, a lot of different things going on. So so how did you move in the direction of uh, of getting the the arc published? Well, I've been writing, like, taking a real stab at writing for about the last six years. And dating back to 2009, 2010, somewhere in there. And that's about the time frame that I started uh, writing the very first book uh, I ever wrote, which was not The Ark. It was actually a a sci-fi comedy called A Hole in the Fence, which was very much in the vein of, say, Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide universe or uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld universe. Um, it was, you know, it was meant as a as a funny sci-fi satire kind of kind of picking on tropes sort of thing. And I had a huge amount of time, or I had a huge amount of fun writing that. But it it struggled to find uh, it struggled to find an agent. It struggled to find a 
uh, publisher. So I went and wrote another one, uh, which also wasn't the arc. It was actually a high seas, high fantasy. Uh, and that one, similarly, <laughs> didn't actually go anywhere. And I went back and reread it a little while ago and, and figured out why it didn't go anywhere. Um, but then I, the arc kind of came to me almost all at once uh, after I had watched, I think it was, it was something on the Discovery Channel about like the, the actual engineering challenges that it would take to, to build a generation ship. Uh, and it was, you know, it was like an hour long, two hour long special, something like that. And it was, it was fun. But I, I got to thinking about it. I always like to tinker with stuff, so I started drawing out what I thought a generation ship actually build would look like, which is why I ended up using the uh, nuclear impulse propulsion, which is something that was first proposed back in the 1950s. This is, if we needed to leave right now, the only technology that exists that we could build right now that would actually be able to get us up to a, an appreciable fraction of light speed would be this... Uh, this nuclear impulse propulsion, uh, also known as Project Orion. So I designed the ship around that because I was like, all right, we're not gonna we're not gonna be coming up with warp drive anytime soon. We need to be able to build something right now. And just so uh, readers who haven't, I mean, basically the model is a ship that is using the nuclear weapons that we have today, and and what exploding them uh, one at a time and and in a controlled way to propel the ship. Is, is yeah, that how it works? Yeah. You build, a, you build a giant ablative plate, an armor plate. You attach shock absorbers to it, and then you attach the, like the habitat modules and, and you know the command structure and, and you know all the all the little bits that keep the gooey stuff alive inside. Um, and then behind it, you you drop out nuclear bombs and you blow them up. And this was first, like I said, this was first proposed back in the 1950s, and they actually did some live tests of it. Uh, with conventional explosives that you can see on YouTube, and it works. It works fine. It's just ruinously expensive, and it's you know kind of causes a lot of radioactive fallout in the ground on your on your way up. But it would work, and in fact, it would work so well that you could get a payload up to five percent of light speed. That's the maximum velocity of this thing, provided you want to then turn the ship around and slow back down to a stop wherever you're wherever you're trying to get to. If you didn't want to do that, if you were just building a probe that was going to do a flyby, you could get up to 10% of light speed with this method. That's what the math says. It's inc- it's a crazy, and we could build right now if we had, you know, 15 trillion dollars lying around or something like that. Um, but it's it's doable. Well, it sounds like you worked out some of the science if you've if you've uh, you understand this much of it. I worked out quite a bit of it. I just didn't want to rub it in, in readers' faces because, like I said, I was trying to write something that would appeal to the broadest possible audience. Like, I know exactly how fast the modules had to be spinning uh, in order to create 1G of gravity on their inside surface, and at uh, 2 kilometers in diameter, that speed was just under 400 kilometers an hour, so these things were spinning at like 60 or like 50-some revolutions a minute. They were, you know, I, I was shocked when I figured out just how fast they had to spin in order to, to create that much gravity. But, there, you know, those were the numbers. And I sat down and figured out, like, what's the acreage necessary to sustain one human person, you know, one human being per year, you know, uh, of, of arable land and all that. Um, in fact, I even did a tour of this short-lived project here in Milwaukee where they were, uh, it, was in, it was a hydroponics garden that grew lettuce and other leafy greens and some vegetables alongside fish 
uh, where because the fish would poop and then the fish poop water would would grow the vegetables and and clean the water out and then that clean water would go right back into the fish tank. It was this really amazing thing. Um, so yeah, I had a I had a pretty good idea of how this thing would actually work, or could actually work. Well, so tell me, though, about how you integrate your life as a comedian. I mean, the dialogue is very funny at times and very witty, so I can see how that's definitely part of your personality. Um, it seems like a very different kind of career. Uh, and I'm fascinated by how writers, you know, balance uh, sometimes just for survival a different career. But obviously, you know, one doesn't become a comedian uh, usually to become rich unless one's really lucky, just like one doesn't usually become a writer to become rich, at least as the primary goal. So. I assume you derive pleasure from from both the writing and um, stand-up. Uh, and I just wonder how you balance those things or how they complement each other in your life. You know, I don't really find that I have to balance them. Um, it, it's it, it's amusing to me that you you say the uh, dialogue is, is uh, you know, snappy and, and, and witty. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I didn't write it to be a funny book. I wrote it as what I thought was a serious murder mystery. And then a lot of my, you know, like my beta readers read it and were like, wow, this is really funny. I'm like, I wasn't trying to be, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but uh, hey, well, it's, as long as it's entertaining. It's you know? more like the character, you know, the characters are witty and, and, and smart alecky with each other. So that, I think mm. that's where the, the cleverness comes from. But it's like, they're clever. It's not like... You know, yeah. the book, the narrator, or the, you know, there's a cleverness that's o- over the whole thing. It's like you, you, you created smart people who are entertaining to, to hear them interact with each other. And Well, and, and you know, I think, I find that uh, if you actually sit and listen to people in real life, humor is how we deal with everything. <laughs> you know, if you're having a bad day or you're, you know, so, or something much more serious happens, you know, if friends friend's parents died or, or, you know, somebody tried to commit suicide or Donald Trump tries to take over the free world, you know, just ridiculous things that shouldn't happen in a well-run universe. You, you, you deal with that through, through humor and you deal with that through trying to be witty and diffusing it. And I find a lot of things that I read, uh, the characters are just unreasonably dry because I don't know anybody who reacts to things with just this constant stoic, you know, un, unfeeling, no wise cracking. I don't know anyone like that. Maybe they exist, but they're not in my circle of friends. So I just ended up writing characters that felt real to me. Yeah, the kind of people you'd like to hang out with, I guess. I would just, yeah, I would say so. And maybe, maybe I'm a little bit jaded or slanted because I tend to hang out with stand-up comedians who are in their mid to late 20s, and, and they're all terrible people. Um, but, you know, so I, I don't really see them... I don't really see the writing and the and the comedy as as even being different things because writing, uh, you know, requires humor, and comedy is writing. Uh, you know, whether or not I'm performing to people on a stage or on the page, it's still my words and my thoughts that are are telling them a story and allowing them to derive pleasure from it. Hopefully, I don't really even see them as different disciplines personally. Um, my my dialogue uh, and my characterizations are better because of my comedy. My comedy has taught me how to be, uh, how to conserve words very aggressively. You know how to how to cut stuff down to its bare essence without uh, a bunch of su- uh, superfluous adjectives and and unnecessary setup, which is you know when you're when you're trying to cram as much into a eighty or hundred thousand 
word novel as possible um, and, and get it nice and crisp and keep the pace flowing, that skill is of, of immense value. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really perceive them as being different. One I do during the day and the other I do at night. That's really the only difference. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I think the political writing might be a little different, although the other things you've just described being concise, uh, you know, is important. And um, I forget what the other things were you said, but the, the, <laughs> the point is that I think the political writing is also persuasive and in nonetheless impressive, you know, that you are also, you know, interested in politics and willing to write about it. Although I'd say with the humorous a wisecracking slant, but which in no way dilutes, I think, the um, the political underlying political message. Well, thank you for that. Although, frankly, this this last year or so, uh, politics has been nothing uh, but a laugh fest, as far as I can tell, because this this can't be this can't be the real country I live in. Like we are, we're in the alternate timeline in Back to the Future right now, and Marty and Doc have to get in the DeLorean and go back and fix some some stuff because somebody screwed something up about 18 months ago because there's no way this is the real world exactly but you know i thought there's, I, I there's just, just no way <laughs> i had the same thought i thought well i suppose you know in alternate worlds i mean anything is ultimately possible it's just statistically very remote so we're living we're in, through we're in one of those right now we are it, living through that <laughs> exactly one of these things that's so you know one and a billionth trillionth gazillionth mm-hmm. possibility but it exists and here we are here we are no, in fact, I just, uh, I mean, I've written about politics and talked about politics, you know, either on my own personal blog or in my comedy for as long as I've been doing those things. But it's only just recently, within the last few weeks, that I've actually started uh, getting paid to do it and getting paid to do it by, you know, a, a newspaper or, or online magazine with natural national reach like The Hill. Uh, and that actually all came be- out about because of a tweet I had a tweet that I put out a couple of months ago now, um, kind of a snarky thing in response to police brutality, uh, which just said simply, um, what was it exactly? Oh, um, just do what they say and you won't get hurt is what we tell hostages, not citizens interacting with the police. And that got retweeted like a bunch of times. I mean, you know, a couple thousand, 3000 times, something like that. I haven't looked in a while. Um, but as it happened, uh, one of the one of the associate editors of the Hill saw that tweet, and then looked up and saw a few more of my tweets, and then went and looked at my and then you know backtracked me using uh, you know the contact information on my Twitter profile, and read a bunch of my political blog posts on my own blog, and then emailed me out of the blue and said I would really like to talk to you about writing for us. So it's like, oh, so you want me to write the same shit I've been writing for the last three years, except I'll get paid for it and get in front of tens of thousands of people instead of dozens? Yeah, I think I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And I love this. I mean, I love the con- t- Twitter connection because lately all I hear, you know, and feel about Twitter, I've been tweeting less just because of all these horrible stories about people being harassed and all the racist invective and all the troll. I mean, there's always been trolls, but um, I mean, to hear something sort of positive which is what i'm hearing in in your story come out of uh, a, a oh, tweet it's, it's is been, great yeah no it's it's been very positive for me i'm i'm just about to crack a thousand uh twitter followers which you know just a few weeks ago i was you know i was only i was right around 500 so i've almost doubled in a very short amount of time and i've been on there since 2012 so you know the rate of of uh, growth for my own uh, my own base there is has been 
really quite impressive. Um, and it's not that there aren't there aren't trolls and racists and and sexists and all that. Um, the trouble is they run into me, and I don't give a shit. I am a stand-up comedian. I know how to deal with hecklers, and I know how to deal with them in person, and I know how to deal with them online, and they don't last long. And that's not a skill that everybody has, and that's not time that everybody has. Um, so I, I, I totally get that. And if if these people were attacking one of my friends, I would be, you know, I'd be horrified. But when they go after me, I just laugh, and then I have my fun with them. So that stuff doesn't bother me. Although I, I understand completely why it under, why it bothers and, and frightens other people. But I figure if I can take a little bit of heat off of them um, and, you know, direct a little bit of that fire my way and even get a little bit of my own back while I'm doing it, great. Fantastic. Well, more power to you. You, you should probably do like a seminar on how to, how to fight the trolls or something. I think more people should have those tools. <laughs> I have gotten six death threats in the last three weeks, and I have a standard response to them now, uh, which I have found to be very effective. Uh, when somebody sends me a death threat, it's usually on my private email because they don't want to do it out in public where it'd be easy to just screen cap or whatever. Uh, I have a picture of me buck naked holding an assault rifle with a rage erection, and I just send that picture to them with a little caption that says, can't wait to meet you, I wonder which one you're more afraid of getting shot with. And then nothing happens after that. That's pretty much the end of them. <laughs> Works great so far. <laughs> Sounds, yeah, amazing, fantastic. Um, well, well, congratulations. <laughs> you've, you've, you've figured out the magic formula. <laughs> Again, it won't work for everybody, but it's worked for me so far. Well, uh, I think there's no better way to end this interview than on, on that <laughs> image and everyone seared into everyone's mind, all listeners' minds. I'm now. really sorry that that had to, had to come out, but anyway. That's, no, it's a beautiful thing, I'm sure. Um, so I have been speaking with, well, thank you. Let me just thank you, uh, Patrick Tomlinson, who is the author of the uh, Children of a Dead Earth series, and the first two books of which have been published, The Ark and Trident's Forge, and there will be a third book next year, so stay tuned for that. So catch up, get your copies now so you can be ready for uh, the third installment. Thank you so much, Patrick. I really had a lot of fun uh, reading your books and, and talking to you tonight. No, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I'm Rob Wolf, and I am the host of New Books in Science Fiction. You can follow uh, the New Books in Science Fiction at New Books Sci-Fi on uh, Twitter, and we also have a Facebook page, um, NB Science Fiction. And you can listen to our podcasts on iTunes and subscribe on other podcasting apps. Uh, and you can find us on the New Books Network, which has also a lot of other great podcasts around other uh, themes. And you can follow me on Twitter, too, at Rob Wolf Books, although I've been a little shy lately. But uh, <laughs> I, will, I will try to be inspired by uh, Patrick's example. Hey, if you, if you ever have any trouble, just... Just tag in at Stealthy Geek, and I, I look out for my friends. So Okay, well, thank you, Patrick. That makes me feel much better. And why don't you also share your um, any other, uh, like, the, your website and uh, anything else, like, where they can find you on the Hill? 
Or oh, sure. Um, yeah, you can find me in the contributors section of the Hill. Just look up. Uh, you just do a search for Tomlinson, and that'll that'll bring up whichever uh, you know my my most recent articles. Um, you can find uh, not only my uh, you know, a listing of my novels and where you can buy them, but also my upcoming uh, comedy gigs and, and dates at my website, which is uh, Patrick S. as in Sean Tomlinson dot com. Real easy. You can also find me on Facebook again, Patrick Tomlinson, uh, and I do have an author page. Although uh, Facebook's throttling has made that almost useless, uh, but yeah, same thing. So 